Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome again to Denver Seminary and Engage 360. We are really glad that you're with us. My name is Don Payne. I'm privileged to be your host. Before we get underway today, let me ask you something that I probably should do more often, but uh, don't do so it doesn't become too stale and old, but it would be great if you are a regular listener or even an occasional listener and find anything of benefit with the really remarkable guests that we are privileged to have on Engage 360. We would love it if you would uh, take just a moment and go to your podcast platform, however you listen to us, and give us a rating or a review because I know everybody says that, but it actually does help expand uh, listenership and exposure and really is a help to us. So please uh, please take a moment to do that uh, if you don't mind. Well, as we get underway with uh, today's episode, um, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. Now, if you listen to leaders who bear significant responsibility in any uh, arena, any kind of organization, or if you are one, you've certainly heard about the pressures of leadership, the loneliness of leadership, the struggles and difficulties of leadership. Uh, in fact, you may have heard about those so much that it can almost make you wonder why anyone would ever lead, right? Well, our guest today has done a deep dive, a really deep dive into one common and troublesome dimension of leadership, which is anxiety. Now, frankly, in, in the leadership literature I've surveyed, I've not seen that theme arise very often, but when I saw the title of the book that our guest authored, I immediately could resonate with that. Uh, leaders may talk a lot about being transformational in their settings, but from both um, our guest's experience and his research, he's offered some resources that can genuinely transform the leader. So Steve Cuss is the uh, author of a recent book called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. Uh, Steve is the founder of a website called CapableLife.me. That's www.CapableLife.me, M-E, which is an online community designed to help uh, you as a leader function as a calm, aware, present human in the workplace and in the home. Uh, Steve has served in a variety of pastoral roles for 26 years, uh, the majority of those as a lead pastor, and he's also a strategic partner with Compassion International, with Leadership Network, and with Missio Alliance. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Don, thank you so much. I, I'm a huge fan of Denver Seminary, as you know, um, my wife being a graduate, so it's, it's a real honor to be with you. Well, it's great to have you with us. Um, Steve grew up in Perth, in Western Australia. And after moving to the U.S. for theological studies, he married his wife, Lisa, whom he referred to. They have two sons and a daughter. And when Steve's not working, uh, I'm told you can find him um, in trout streams yes. or, or trying to play a guitar that he can't out of, cannot afford at a music store. You may want to <laughs> tell us a little bit about that, Steve. Uh, yes, uh, it, it's probably not particularly pertinent to our topic of anxiety, except I do believe music is an incredible gift from God to uh, diffuse anxiety. Um, but I, I have um, my taste in guitars exceeds my budget. <laughs> Um, I'm constantly on the hunt for uh, the next guitar. <laughs> okay. And, and the trout fishing. 
Yes, so, there's no- a- avid trout fisher. Yeah, I'm not very good at it. I, I, I'd say it's um, I've never loved a hobby more that I'm bad at. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's but, well put. Yeah, but boy, it's it's quite an art form, and I do think trout are beautiful. I, I took a I took a lesson very early, um, and it was like an 18 year old kid teaching trout fishing. And you know, here in my middle age, I'm like, what do you know about trout fishing? Well, of course, you know, he's been fly fishing since he was like six. And at one point, I, I just said to him, why do you trout fish why do you fly fish and he said um he said trout only know how to live in beautiful places and i thought that was quite profound um and that's a good enough reason to go fly fishing oh yeah it is one of my sons is obsessed with fly fishing and is uh, trying to get me into it so i'm i'm going to get into it just for the sake of spending time with him and it's a good reason to do it yeah yeah it is steve let's talk about leadership and leadership anxiety i love the title of your book um and the the creative, I guess it's creative. This uh, the angle that you've taken on looking at the anxieties in leadership. Um, maybe tell us a little bit first about how you came to give so much attention to this. What's the story behind this? Yeah, I think it took me a while because I'm, I'm a six foot three Aussie, deep voice white guy, and it took me a while to realize that I'm actually quite an anxious person. I think um, I'm one of those leaders that's pretty type A and mission-driven, um, others-focused. And I think uh, it took a while to realize, oh, man, underneath all of that is a fairly sensitive soul. Um, I, I cut my teeth on all of this in my early 20s when I was a hospital chaplain. Mm-hmm. I did four, four units of clinical pastoral education. And it just so happens that the head chaplain was trained in Bowen theory by Murray Bowen, by the founder of Bowen Theory. So if any of your listeners have ever read Systems Theory or Edwin Friedman, those people, um, my my supervisor, George, and Ed Friedman were friends. They went to class together under Bowen. And, and I was given this theory uh, that helped me make sense of the way I am, the way people are, and it became an incredible gift in chaplaincy to notice anxiety um, first of all, notice it in me. When I would walk into a room where somebody was dying, I'd get anxious. I'd, I'd be worried that I didn't know what to say or didn't know what to do. And if I wasn't careful, my anxiety would like uh, infect my ability to see what the family required. I was operating out of my needs subconsciously instead of focusing on them. And system theory really teaches you how to pay attention to yourself and then once you've done that for a while, it teaches you how to pay attention to what's going on between people, the dynamics between people. And and so that's really what the book is formed on. I, I took it out of chaplaincy. I did some work in graduate school. Um, and then I noticed, oh, man, this really helps in ministry. And for me personally, never more than in lead pastoring. I, I really I, I loved being a lead pastor and I struggled with it at the same time. It was always very intense for me. Yeah, you know, when you talk about leadership anxiety, Steve, um, give us maybe some anecdotal or some images of that. What are, whether it's pastoral or other forms of leadership, uh, you you kind of started down this trail, but uh, unfold that for us a little bit more. What are the kinds of circumstances, situations that tend to prompt this anxiety that so many leaders struggle with? Yeah, if we, if we just talk about, for example, the role of a lead pastor or a preacher, you know, you've got a man or a woman on stage. It's very vulnerable preaching. I actually think it's more vulnerable than singing. 
um, because because any good sermon, in my opinion, is quite personal. It's obviously centered around scripture. It, it, yeah. I, out of scripture but it's still you personally interacting with it so you're offering yourself that's a vulnerable thing to do and um i just find tremendous anxiety in my life uh on the pressure like i used to operate for years under the belief that every sermon i preached had to be the best sermon that would just be one very simple example of anxiety and so then i get off the stage and i need a pat on the head from my wife um you know whether whether the sermon actually went well or not didn't really matter it was all about how i perceived it um then you could look at for example criticism which every leader faces if you are a, if you have any pastoral skill at all you're intuitive with people that typically makes you pretty sensitive to people you want to please them or you you want to be well with them and so when people are frustrated at you or maybe they've um, painted you with a picture that's not true, you, know, you end up scurrying around trying to please them. That would be an example of, of anxiety. So we all carry these assumptions and these false beliefs just under the surface, and we operate out of them if we're not aware of them. And uh, I think that's really what leads to a lot of burnout in, in leaders and pastors is, is unaddressed chronic anxiety. Yeah, and, and it seems like there's a, a cumulative effect to that at least in my own experience, it comes in, and maybe this is what contributes toward that sense of burnout, is, is the, these slowly accumulating layers of anxiety and the fatigue that comes from all of that, um, where, you know, at some point, I think leaders, leaders come to, uh, to believe that the, the effect of this anxiety is outweighing uh, whatever sense of calling or... or um, uh, positive benefits that I'm experiencing in my leadership role. It just gets to be, you know, t- too much the aggregate of all that anxiety. I think that's right. I, I think it is the aggregate of it. And I, I also, like my wife's a trauma therapist. I've, I've learned so much from her. And uh, she studied Dr. Kurt Thompson, psychiatrist, Christian mm-hmm. psychiatrist. Dr. Kurt Thompson, he says that um, a shame message or a negative message takes three seconds to embed in your psyche. And a positive message takes 60 to 90 seconds to embed. And I do think um, just leadership by definition, particularly COVID-era leadership, is the art of managing people's expectations, managing your own expectation of yourself. And, And sometimes, like this cumulative effect, what's going on is people's assumptions and expectations about you kind of breed or or collude with your own assumptions and expectations about yourself. And it, it becomes this like unholy monster, almost like I remember in Lord of the Rings, you'd watch these monsters like be bred from the deep and they come up out of the ground of these terrible things. Yeah. That's the way I see chronic anxiety. It's contagious. We catch it from each other. It's different from any other kind of anxiety. Um, and we catch it when we adopt each other's assumptions uh, so even just your average pastor, if you have a first-time guest coming to your church, they know you as pastor before they know you as a human being. Right. Which is to say they carry all these assumptions about who you are. In, in today's day and age, i, I, I got to say, Don, I think some of the exposing of the fraud and the hypocrisy, I think it's necessary in you know some of these articles we're seeing about famous church leaders. Um, but 
boy, that makes it hard for your local pastor who's actually faithfully serving and is a person, a man or woman of integrity. But people don't trust us because we're pastor. And that's an assumption. They're, they're making an assumption about us. And if you catch that assumption, you'll catch that anxiety. One thing, one word that's coming to mind is identity, our sense of identity, our sense of who we are. And as you're you're talking about that, Steve, what I'm what I'm kind of putting together in my mind is this equation between these messages and assumptions that keep coming our way as leaders and how our identity is forming, our self-identity is forming. Um, and and it, the, these messages and these anxieties seem to contribute toward this, this sense of identity that we can't uh, differentiate from, uh, you know, who we really are from who we're afraid we might be or who we're afraid people may think we are. Does, does I, that make any sense? It does. I think that's exactly right. I, I, I was surprised to discover after 10 years of ministry, and I, before I became a lead pastor, I was doing pretty extensive crisis work. I was hospice work and trauma chaplaincy. And then in Las Vegas, I did crisis intervention in one of the most under-resourced cities in the world. I mean, my ministry was no picnic. But then I stepped into lead pastoring, and suddenly my life kind of unraveled, my internal life. I was really surprised. I was like, man, I'm not managing the pressure of lead pastoring. And here I am as a suburban lead pastor. You would think that would be a easier job than trauma chaplains. Yeah. But for me, it was way harder. And I think it, I think you hit the nail on the head. It was an identity issue. I Suddenly, the well-being of the church and the reputation of church was exactly inexplicably linked to my well-being and my reputation. So that actually sent me on a journey. One of the things that was really important to me in the book was I wanted to treat anxiety theologically because I, I don't see us doing that enough. And what I came to discover is every human being operates out of uh, five core false needs that if we don't get them, we we then get chronically anxious. And it's fascinating to me, Don, I'll just say them briefly, it's control, perfection, always knowing the answer, always being there for people, and approval. Uh, control, perfection, always knowing the answer, always being there for people, and approval. And we don't all have all five, but we all have some of the five. For me, it's the, it's the last three. Like, if you put me in a meeting and Jim asks Sally a question, if I'm in that meeting, I feel compelled to answer Jim's question, even though he didn't ask me. There's hmm. something weird in me that has to have the answer. So then if you put me in a chaplaincy situation and somebody is dying and a loved one like screams at me, how can God allow this to happen? In the moment, rather than recognizing that this person is simply venting their anger and their shock, What's going on is my chronic anxiety is telling me, you have to answer that question. Mm. Even though they're not really asking a logical question in that moment. Um, also, being there for people, I have this need in my life that if somebody is hurting, I feel compelled to be there for them. Uh, you know, some of our listeners are like raging perfectionists, for example. So they led through COVID. And even though they'd never done it before, they expected themselves to lead perfectly through this unprecedented time. And as I studied it theologically, what I discovered is, okay, these five core attributes, these are actually the five distinctives of Jesus. This is why we worship Jesus as God, because Jesus is in control and he's perfect and he 
knows everything and he's there for everybody and he gives us our approval. And so I think theologically what's going on is we, as humans, we are trying to stand on self-righteousness rather than fold our life into Christ. I, I don't say that in any way to make people feel guilty. I actually say it as an invitation that if you can notice your chronic anxiety, it's an incredible invitation to relax into the supremacy of Christ and, and let God be perfect so you can do it well enough and, and so on. Yeah, well, you're, you're naming what is very commonly called a Messiah complex, and I'm not sure if that's that's how you frame it, but that's that's what comes to my mind. Yeah. Th- this, yeah. this need, this uh, need wherever it comes from to kind of be what we assume Jesus is or would be in a situation, and the pressure of that is sometimes pulverizing. Yes, yes. I think this is why pastors burn out, not because of workload, but because of unaddressed chronic false needs. And and particularly if we're people pleasers, then all our needs are wrapped up in all of people's expectations, and that's madness. Oh, yeah. And it was speaking specifically of pastors, and I know this. there are uh, versions of this that take place in many leadership uh, situations, but... Uh, you know, if if a person is in a pastoral form of ministry, and you don't have an answer, and you're not there, and you can't solve a problem, the the message that we internalize, and sometimes the message that people will say to us is, "What good are you?" Right. I mean, for crying out loud, you're the pastor. You're supposed to know. You're supposed right. You're supposed to be there. You're supposed I, to be I, able to do something. And 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 then in in a culture like ours, at least many Western cultures which are fix-it cultures. I mean, we're, we're accustomed, we're kind of engineering cultures. We know, how to, we know how to fix things. We know how to make things that will fix things. So a person who isn't able to do much, what, what good are they? Right. I mean, th- this is where Eugene Peterson is such a gift, the late Eugene Peterson, where, where his whole challenge was the, the pastor's job is to attend to God, attend to yourself, and attend to your people. I, I think, particularly for young pastors, you have to um, make the decision very early on. Am I going to be like God's representative, like the the example, or am I simply going to be a human being who was trained and educated? And uh, they, they look very different to me. So I, I have a college degree in Bible and preaching, and then I have a Master of Divinity from an excellent seminary. I was very well trained. And that is why I can open the Bible and make meaning of it for people. But the moment that people start seeing me as closer to God because of that, I think we're all in trouble. Because from God's point of view, who's to say I'm closer to God than, for example, the man who's volunteering in the nursery changing diapers? The difference between he and I is I was trained in the Bible. But I think... The problem is when you go into ministry training, you feel this pressure to be some kind of a model Christian, some kind of a, you know, the one that can explain everything. But the moment you explain a mystery, you've lost the mystery. Um, so I think if pastors can can be human-sized in front of their people and then coach their people to expect them to be human-sized, I think that's the, the way to flourish and thrive and help your people relax as well. Uh, and the way, you know, I do that. I share my mistakes very openly from the pulpit. I share my doubt very openly, uh, not to then traumatize my congregation with my doubt, but to invite their doubt out of the open. 
rather than feeling like they have to hide it. Mm. I think in a lot of churches, it's a big problem. You know, the pastor gets on stage. He never seems to question. Like you, you read your Bible and you don't get it, but your pastor always seems to get it. And so you think, well, there's something wrong with me. Right, right. But let, pastors, if you get up and say, I don't, I don't get this. Like I've, and I've spent 15 hours this week reading experts on it. And I still don't get it. That's much more helpful, I think. Uh, do you find, Steve, that um, many leaders are resistant to owning or admitting this anxiety that is the, that is an undercurrent in their lives? I have found uh, a very welcoming audience to my message. Um, I've I've found almost no resistance. I, what I have noticed when I particularly I've done a lot of work in Asian cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and some of my Asian sisters and brothers, like right now I'm in a zoom group and there's pastors in India and Thailand and Hong Kong and Malaysia. And obviously each of those are different cultures, but what they have in common is they say, oh, this is really good. But in our culture, there's all this pressure and there's honor, shame. And mm -hmm. so what I find is people then struggle to translate it. Um, I, I, I'm working right now with a denomination I probably can't name, but the amount of pressure that the pastors receive from their congregants to be superhuman, um, to be the one that has the answer. And I, I think somebody has to go first. And so when I'm teaching, I go first. I teach very frankly about my own vulnerabilities and mistakes and my anxiety. And that disarms my the people I teach. And typically I'm teaching faith leaders. Um, and the person that went first for me was Frederick Beekner. I, I, when I was a chaplain and I started going into doubt, Frederick Beekner was way ahead of his time writing very openly about doubt and fear and being human. And that gave me permission to try it. All I can tell you is this is how I've led for 16 years at my church. I don't say it to be some kind of model leader. I don't, I don't know that I'm a model leader in a lot of ways, but I certainly conditioned my church to expect nothing more and nothing less than a human being mm. the pulpit. Mm. Uh, and, and so my goal was just to be hungry to hungry for Jesus, not the example of a Jesus follower. And of course, Don, I, I hope people hear what I'm saying. My private life, I think, must be congruent with my public reputation. I think they ought not be secret habits and destructive things. I'm not talking about those kinds of human experiences. Mm -hmm. Talking about the pressure we feel to be the example. I, I think I don't think God called us to that. Uh, Steve, I love how just a few moments ago you headed down the trail of uh, kind of a theological analysis of this when you were talking about um, you know who Jesus is and how we kind of mistake ourselves for Jesus. And I'd love to push a little bit further down that lane, that theological lane. Um, you said even a little earlier, I think, that we we often try to analyze and uh, deal with anxiety in other than theological ways. So let's let's think about the gospel, uh, the gospel of, you know, the, the grace of God through Jesus Christ that, um, you know, most um, evangelical Christians are going to embrace. But, but I wonder often whether that gospel has actually soaked into or penetrated our operational lives in in, right. in, you know, things that we haven't operationalized the gospel, even though we may proclaim it, 
very well and very clearly, it's not always operationalized in our ways of being. And I'd love to hear you talk a little more about that. Uh, you know, how does the gospel itself actually uh, form the, um, or give, give, give the resources or uh, constitute a, a counter measure to this anxiety? I, I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the challenge in the Western culture is we really do believe we can read and think our way to change. And I do believe that discipleship in the Bible is we embody and walk our way to change. So I think you're totally right about um, how it's not embodied. Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, she says that, you know, the gospel or our life, it's a bit like a vending machine where God's put the coin in. So we have the gospel in us, but someone needs to smack us on the side for it to lodge deep. <laughs> I, I think that's a good way to talk about it. I, I, I think the gift of chronic anxiety and I guess we should be careful here, Don. Chronic anxiety is just one of many types of anxiety. And um, so so when I talk about chronic anxiety, I'm not talking about anxiety that requires psychiatric medicine or I'm not talking about trauma, for example. Those are all different. But chronic anxiety is a clinical form of anxiety that is purely built on assumptions and false needs. Okay. That's what makes it. And now I think we have the gospel. So I would, I'd be heartbroken if somebody who maybe struggles with um, an anxiety disorder where they're, they're really helped by medication, I'd be heartbroken if they heard me and thought I was talking about their situation. I'm really talking about when you make an assumption about yourself, when you make an assumption about another person, or they put an assumption on you and you carry it. Um, now, now we're in my field. And so chronic anxiety gets to be almost like a tornado warning, like it becomes the early detection system that you're unintentionally living for yourself rather than standing on the goodness of God. And, and you know, one simple way that I do it is my performance anxiety around preaching. Um, if somebody criticizes me, because one of my assumptions is that if you just um, – if you just knew me, you'd like me. So therefore, if you don't like me, my assumption is I must keep meeting with you to win you over. Okay. That's crazy. Like that's the path to create. First of all, I'm just feeding the problem because some people don't like me because I'm pastor. It has nothing to do with me as a human. They they have painted upon onto me an assumption that's not true. But if I adopt their assumption now i'm operating out of a false self i must have you like me for me to be okay mm -hmm. and the opposite is the gospel it's much more relaxing i think for me don i remember i wasn't long into lead pastoring reading the words of jesus where he talked about his burden and his yoke and how light and easy it was and i remember having this like visceral reaction saying that's a lie like that's not true i'm in ministry and i'm not feeling that light and easy burden at all and that's when I realized, oh, man, I'm, Jesus offers free freedom and peace. And the very gospel I'm proclaiming, I'm not experiencing for myself. And that really was kind of the, the turning point in my journey to go deeper into this chronic anxiety. And what I discovered is, oh, I'm, I'm living out of all my reactivity. I'm, I'm just reacting to expectations and assumptions rather than being rooted in the approval that God gives me. I love what you said just a moment ago about relaxing, and I don't—I'm not sure that I had ever put together 
the terms gospel and relax. But the way you're describing this, Steve, it, it sounds like the gospel, once it's, or as, as it becomes, to, uh, becomes really internalized in our lives, uh, increasingly, we relax. I really think we do. And I, I've had some people like accuse me of saying that we should be lazy. You know, well, what about mission? People will say, um, how would we ever be missionaries? And, and I'm like, have you studied historical mission? Like a lot of those people were some of the most relaxed in the gospel. A couple of years ago, I, I had a podcast and I interviewed uh, Gregory Boyle, Catholic priest who lives in the heart of Compton. Uh, Los Angeles. He has the single largest gang recovery ministry in the world. Uh, you you can't meet a more relaxed human being. And and Father Boyle has gone to more underage funerals than anyone could fathom from gun gun violence. He he lives in a risky area and he's completely relaxed in Christ. Huh. So I, I think the, the the assumption that we have to somehow operate out of an anxiety to follow Jesus. Oh, that's crazy. The the other thing I would say, Don, is as I study chronic anxiety, it's fascinating to study Jesus himself. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was clinically in what's known as acute anxiety. And acute anxiety is life and death. Uh, I mean, our version of it would be when you're on the interstate and you think you're going to run into the back of another car. Yeah. Well, Jesus is facing the cross. He knows what's coming. He's in acute anxiety. But then... Not many hours later, he's in front of Pontius Pilate. He's completely calm. It's unbelievable. And it's because he is, in this, the way we're talking about it, he is relaxed into the grace of God. And that doesn't mean that he wasn't in pain, um, but he was connected to the Father. I find it stunning and, and a great invitation for me to, to enjoy the God that I proclaim. Um, and it is a challenge in ministry. I think ministry is actually a bit of a hazard to my soul health. Hmm. That's a really inviting message, Steve. Just um, uh, that's a that's a beckoning message. Yeah. yeah. For for so many of us, for whom I, you know, I wonder, and I you know, I can place myself in this as easily as I could place somebody else. You know, I wonder for how many of us. Uh, the the kind of anxiety you're talking about has become so familiar and so uh, uh, so much a part of the our way of being that we don't know how to lead otherwise. And as as distressing and crushing as it is, uh, it's all we know and it's normative for us. It's it's such a poignant insight you have there, Don. That that would be the number one. When I go and do workshops for organizations, that's generally the most common response is like, what do you mean I don't have to live this way? And and so I, I do believe anxiety has a gospel. I think it's really helpful if, if a gospel like, you know, obviously you're at a seminary. That's where I first learned the Pax Romana. And it was profound for me. What do you, I remember in the like, what do you mean gospel isn't a church word? What do you mean it's actually an empire word that that the authors of scripture stole from the Roman empire. (laughs) It's an incredibly, it's a move of moxie. That's for sure. And so that helped me to realize, okay, then, then there's all these gospels. And, you know, we talk about false gospels all the time. What I'm interested in is let's look at the false gospel of chronic anxiety. If, if a gospel is nothing more than a promise and a, and a path, like, Hey, if you want this thing, walk this path, 
then chronic anxiety has a gospel. It says, if you want your life to be well, then worry more, then win that critic over, then, uh, you know, let your inner critic condemn you for your sermon. Like, that's the gospel of anxiety. What's fascinating to me is the gospel of Christ is the only gospel where the God pays in the human benefits. Every other false gospel, whether you're the Roman Empire, the Egyptian system, uh, quite frankly, the American dream is a gospel where you have to pay for you to benefit. And then, of course, if we really want to get delicate, there's a lot of minority culture that pays for some people to benefit in right. Pakistan and in the American dream. Mm -hmm. And then what's interesting in chronic anxiety is that's how you know it's a false gospel because I'm always paying and it's never delivering on its promise. So chronic anxiety tells me that person doesn't like you. Why don't you worry more so you can be at peace? But I, I never get peace. But Christ's gospel, like when Christ says, look, uh, I died so you don't have to win everybody over anymore. You don't have to live that mad life. I actually feel physically the re relaxation of grace in my body. Oh, yeah. And it's, it is palpable. And that's when you realize, um, that's when you realize I don't have to live this way. There, there is a path that leads to peace and freedom. I hope listeners, even as they hear you say that, Steve, begin to feel some of that coming over them. Uh, what a great gift. Uh, I, I'm so appreciative of the, the work you've done and the work you're doing in this. And um, I want to just encourage listeners, uh, whether you are leaders or consider yourself leaders or know somebody who is, uh, encourage them to listen to Steve's comments. Uh, this, this is portable into many, many leadership arenas. Uh, Steve, your book, again, Managing Leadership Anxiety, um, and your website. Tell us just a little bit more about your website and the resources available there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking about it. So um, in, in our church, I've been teaching this in a one-year class for 10 years. We've, we're now on our 10th season of students because this way of living, this way of considering and thinking, um, you have to embody it. You have to, you have to practice. You have to try some things on. You have to notice your behaviors and the behaviors in your groups. And these all take time. So the book was born out of a class that I, I think by the time I wrote the book, I'd been teaching the class six or seven years um, and so last year, uh, we, we thought, well, could we make this class online? Could we, all the elements in our class, which is, uh, content, coaching, peer groups, and time and self-assessment. So those would be like the five elements. So we give you content. We teach like the concepts you and I are talking about. We teach that we put you in a peer group where you can discuss, we have a trained coach. We let it kind of like tea in a, in a hot water, we let it steep. And then we teach you how to assess what's going on. So you can think about the way you think. So capablelife.me is the online version of what we do in our church. And uh, we launched it January of 2021. And I'm, I'm, I've been thrilled with the response. We have 500 or so members from 15 countries. And uh, it's a series of 10 minute videos, just little short concepts and tools and then there's self-assessments when you fill one out it emails itself to you so you can you can sign up with your staff a lot of people are doing that now we're a whole organizational sign up and everyone brings their self-assessments to their meetings and they talk about what they're learning 
we do monthly zooms with coaches we have all kinds of resources and it's it's what's known as systems theory so we get into family of origin and um how do you dissolve criticism how do you notice anxiety spreading in a group um there's tools in systems theory of how to dissolve resistance so like the classic situation of a young pastor in a traditional church that's resisting change we have a whole module on um, how your best efforts are often um, adding resistance instead of dissolving it stuff like that so that's capable uh, as of the recording now, it's $28 a month. We try to make it extremely affordable. And, uh, yeah, people sign up and they participate, and it's a lot of fun. That's great. Well, I hope I hope you get a lot of traffic out of this because this is the kind of thing that uh, it needs to have tentacles into lots of sectors of the church and then the broader culture, for that matter. So I'm, I'm just really, really grateful for all that you're you're doing for that, Steve. Steve Cuss has been our guest today on Engage 360. And Steve, we're just really grateful for you, for your work, and for your time. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, Don, thanks. It was a delightful conversation. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I want to thank also Andrea Wayan, who is behind the production of all these conversations that just invest lots and lots of effort. And we're, grat- we're grateful as well for all the time you spend, listeners. Um, tuning in with us and hope you'll be back with us again very soon for another conversation. This is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care.